Good morning. Let's go ahead and begin class of prayer this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that your kingdom is a kingdom of love who governs with truth, love, liberty, and that you have uh, sent your Son to provide all that we need for eternal salvation. We ask that your Spirit will join us today, lead us into understanding your methods and ways and living in harmony with your design. We pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We're doing lesson number 10 in the quarterly, the book of Job, and the title for this one is The Wrath of Elihu. And before we get into the lesson this week, we found a post online where somebody posted on our Facebook page. We saw it on Wednesday. I don't know when it came in. Voicing concerns about one of our previous lessons, the lesson a couple weeks ago on innocent blood. And the post said, very, very good, Timothy. You found a text the New Testament theologians missed. However, there is another reasonable possibility. You've missed the clear meaning of that text because your predetermined focus doesn't allow you to see another point of view. You really cannot come and reason with others with that attitude, you know. And so we replied, Hi, if you have a question or topic you'd like to discuss, we'd be happy to evaluate it. What text are you referring to, and what is the clear meaning? And the person responded, The Hebrew text is quoted, is quoted along with an Old Testament text. Hebrew text that we talked about the blood not having the power to cleanse the conscience of the worshipers. And the Old Testament text that we referenced were where God said, I don't want your burnt offerings and sacrifices. I'd rather have my people know me and love me than to offer sacrifices to me. Those are the Old Testament texts. It is reasonable to assume these points were the sacrifices necessary. As required by Levitical law, yes. Why? as an outward sign of an inward conviction, not unlike baptism. Would the inward conviction be obvious? Yes, in the actions of justice and humility and mercy, etc. The text simply expressed God's disappointment and the lack of comprehension, not that the sacrificial system was wrong, but the human heart lacked the sacrificial spirit. Just another point of view, maybe. So this was in response to the question about the purpose of the animal sacrifices in the Old Testament and the answer that was given by the two theologians about the exchange of blood and the life of the animal had to be given for the life of the the sinner and then the life of Jesus for our life. The person who posted their concerns makes the point that the sacrifices were necessary according to Levitical law and he suggests it as an outward sign of conviction. But what was our point that we made in class? Anybody remember? that the sacrifices of animals were not necessary for salvation, even though required by Levitical law. It sounds like he may agree, as he says, it's an it's a outward sign of inward conviction. In other words, it was the inward transformation of character, the renewal of heart that was necessary, but the outward sign of a sacrificial animal was not. So that leads to the question, Was the observance of Levitical law necessary for salvation? A simple way to answer the question is to observe, can people be eternally saved without observing the Levitical law, even in Old Testament times? Well, we we can look at Enoch. He clearly didn't observe Levitical law because it hadn't been given yet. But how about after it was given? Are there, are there examples of people who were saved during the time Levitical law was enforced, from the time of Sinai to the time of Christ, who didn't keep it? What about Naaman, the Shunammite woman? Both of them are, are referenced by Christ as being people of faith. Rahab. Rahab came into the system, and she would have then partaking, and she would have then observed the Levitical system once she came into the system, like Ruth. Both of them came in and became part of the system, so then they would have abided by it. But there's no evidence that Shunammite woman or Naaman did, but Christ referenced both of them as being people of faith. Nebuchadnezzar. What about Daniel and his three friends after their captivity? For the rest of their life, after, after they were taken off to captive. How about Esther and Mordecai and all the Jews who were, there was no, remember, during this time there's no temple. There's no place to go and practice this law. Concerns like the one raised by this gentleman arise because I believe there's a failure to understand the larger reality and the purpose of some of God's instructions in the past. And what is the larger reality? God is love. And he built his universe to operate on the design protocols of love, the principle of giving. 
All God's laws are design laws, protocols upon which reality operate, and all deviations of these designs are actually destructive to those who violate them. Satan alleged God's laws are not design laws, but arbitrary rules requiring enforcement by the infliction of punishment. Trust in God was broken with this, those who believe this idea, both the angels in heaven and Adam and Eve. God began, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, and Eden began intervening or interceding with the infection of the lies and the fear and the selfishness that now infected human minds and hearts. And where does God intercede according to Scripture? One, right in Genesis 3, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, he said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman. The woman is a metaphor for the church or the people of God, and the serpent is a metaphor for evil and sin. I'll put enmity. In other words, I'll put a desire in the heart for people to, to, for something better, a desire for them to, to live lives that are in harmony with love and the principles of truth. I, I will not let them be at peace living a life of selfishness. He also began interceding with the powers of darkness, and you see this throughout Scripture, the angel armies holding back the Assyrian armies and uh, the principalities and powers of darkness being held in check, the angels holding the four winds of strife. But most importantly, through Jesus Christ, he interceded or intervened with the natural result of what sin does to an intelligent being. It says that Christ, though he knew no sin, became sin for us so that, what was the reason? We might become the righteousness of God. He interceded and what happens? Sin destroys the character of God in people, causes the hearts that were designed to be love and honest and truth to become infected with fear and self-centeredness and hard-heartedness. And Christ interceded with that condition to restore in humankind the the principles of love and truth and, and liberty, God's character. Understanding the problem is a change. Adam and Eve, when Adam and Eve sinned, the problem was a change in their state of being. They were no longer operating in harmony with God's principles. Then we understand that God had to restore, had to heal, had to fix in humankind what Adam said did to the nature of humankind. This is the purpose of all God has been doing through Christ. That's what was the purpose then of the Levitical law? Was the observance of the Levitical law necessary to fix what sin did to the human species? No, it was not. Christ coming and achieving what he achieved was necessary. Then why? Why do the Levitical law? To teach people of their condition and of their need. Levitical Levitical law was nothing more than theater. It was a drama. It was a play with a stage and cool costumes and props and a script that came to be known as scripture. It was a script. Necessary because the principles of the Ten Commandments were not perceived by the people they were given to. So, and when they went off script too far, as they did at the time of the Babylonian invasion, they after warnings and warnings to get back on script. And you think about a director directing a play on Broadway, and you've got the script, and it's supposed to go like this. Here's what they're supposed to be saying and doing, but they're going off script and saying something completely wrong. What does the director do? He he tries to redirect them over and over. So God sends his prophets over and over to get them back on script, but they don't get back on script, and they finally start killing the prophets. The people, the director is being killed. All the people designed to get them back on script or being stoned. So what does God do? God has the entire stage torn down. The entire temple was destroyed. The entire stage was, and for 70 years, the entire play was suspended. But then there was repentance and introspection and, and turning to God and we'll follow you now. And so he said, okay, go back and rebuild the stage and start. And there's the script. Start following the script. And they got so off script again that when the one whom all of the symbols point to came and walked on stage, which he did, he walked right up onto the temple, they hated him and they killed him. And so, AD 70, the stage was torn down again because they're so far off script. So, from one of the founders of the Adventist church, she wrote the following, Patriarchs and Prophets 364, 
If man had kept the law of God as given to Adam after his fall, preserved by Noah and observed by Abraham, there would have been no necessity for the ordinance of circumcision. And if the descendants of Abraham had kept the covenant of which circumcision was a sign, notice circumcision was a sign. What was it? The sign of? If you read all the New Testament, of cutting away from the heart the attachments to selfish and worldly things and attaching our hearts to godly things. It's a circumcision of the hearts what the New Testament talks about. And if the descendants had kept that covenant, their hearts loyal and faithful to God and his methods, of which circumcision was a sign, they would never, they would have never been seduced into idolatry, nor would it have been necessary for them to suffer a life of bondage in Egypt. They would have kept God's law in mind, and there would have been no necessity for it to be proclaimed from Sinai or engraved upon tables of stone. And had the people practiced the principles of the Ten Commandments, there would have been no need of the additional directions given to Moses. What were the additional directions? The Levitical law. All of these additional directions from the sacrifices given to Adam after his fall, to circumcision, to the Ten Commandments, to the Levitical law, all of these things were added after sin. They were given because of humanity's sick heart and mind as tools to help us understand our condition and lead us back to our creator for healing and restoration. Another online listener emailed me this week with this quote from Ellen White out of Patriarchs and Prophets, page 68. The sacrificial offerings were ordained by God to, to be to man a perpetual reminder and a penitential acknowledgement of his sin and a confession of his faith and a promised redeemer. They were intended to impress upon the fallen race the solemn truth that it was sin that causes death. Whoa. What was this supposed to teach? Sin causes? Do you know most of Christianity teaches that God inflicts death as the punishment for sin? Is that reference again? Patriarchs of Prophet 68. So notice, if it is a perpetual reminder and acknowledgement and intended to impress the fallen race, do you understand? It's a teaching tool. There is no healing power in that system. It's simply designed to enlighten our minds, to get us to think, to lead us back to where the real power is, and the power is in our creator. That's where the power is. Memory text for this week is Isaiah 55.9, and it segues right into our lesson now. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. What does this mean? How are God's ways higher than our ways? They, they aren't affected by self-centeredness. They aren't affected by uh, the, the infection that we've got. He's unaffected by that. And uh, he has also, I think, power we don't have. I mean, capabilities we don't have. Other thoughts? Yes. Wendell. When you think about just something, quote, simple like heredity or genetics, he can look at the code and read it. Yep. And the vastness of... So he not only understands those facts, but he can also understand the end result. And so to be able to read cause and effect and just our natural and, and foretell the future. He, he knows what's going to happen. Now you weren't suggesting he foretells the future by reading the genetic code. No. Okay. I just wanted to clear that up. Somebody mis- might've misunderstood what you were linking there. Yeah. Okay. Just the vastness. I mean, it's just, I mean, how, how much higher is infinite than finite? Right. Okay, how much higher is infinite? So, so on one aspect, his ways are... But you notice something. He, he didn't say... He didn't say... And I want to read this the text again. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my abilities are higher than your abilities, and my powers higher than your powers. Is that what it says? But that's what you guys are talking about. Not always. I mean, a lot of this has to do with his thought. How he thinks... Is far beyond the scope. It's like us in a minnow. How we think is far beyond anything a minnow could conceive of. Okay. And so we aren't talking, because I do think God is infinite in power, in knowledge, 
omniscient ability to know the future, but I don't think he's primarily focusing on those omniscient abilities. His abilities give him the ability. Okay. Now, I'm going to suggest that's not true. I'm going to suggest it's not that he's all-powerful or all-knowing. It's the character of the one who has those abilities. And it's not because he has those abilities that gives him the character. Are you suggesting because he's all-powerful, that's why he has good character? No, it's, it's because he has those abilities, his character, which is even f- further beyond that, allows him to do things that we can't comprehend. So, notice, this is where I'm going. Rather than, yes, he's got all these abilities we don't have, but notice what he's focusing on here. It's, he's focusing on his ways. My ways are higher than your ways, my thoughts. So I think he's focusing on his methods, how he works, not his, uh, not his power to work. But his methodology in how he works is higher than our ways. And of course, I'm not in any way suggesting he isn't all-powerful or all-knowing or infinite. I'm not suggesting that at all. But I'm suggesting that's not his focal point. That he's focusing on his method of using those abilities that is higher than our ways. Our thoughts are limited by the sin that we experience in life from the very beginning. And God is so much higher than that, never having... Okay, I like where you're going with that. So the methods of Adam and Eve prior to the fall, their ways of doing business prior to the fall, might have been in harmony with God's ways. Yes. Okay, and their thoughts, you know, our thoughts will be brought captivity to his thought. Talks about, you know, so we're to have the mind of Christ. Let every thought be brought captive to Jesus Christ, it says in Scripture. So in God's eternal plan, one day our thoughts will be in harmony with his thoughts. Our thoughts will be like his thoughts. Not infinite, but along the same avenues and same value system and the same principles. We all agree with that so far? So I like where you're going. There's something wrong with our way of thinking and our way of operating, our ways of doing things. So what are our ways? What methods do sinful human beings and earthly governments use for governing? Self-preservation. Okay, self-preservation. And what method does self-preservation use? Yeah. Okay, let's talk about the, the big themes. Everybody, and this is what the lesson's about. Justice. What's fair? Lessons going to talk about fairness. What does justice look like in a human way of thinking? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. In our human law here in Western society, when a criminal's done a crime and the police says, we, we want to help your loved one get justice. Retribution. What are they talking about? Punish the offender. That's what, exactly. This is, so how does human law work? Coercion. Impose rules that require coercion. Yeah. Yes. If you or I had the power that Christ had when he was on the cross, we would have come down. Because our ways are not his ways. That's exactly right. Yeah. No, exactly. And what would we have done with that power? We'd have punished people for doing us wrong. They had no right to do that. Okay. God says that he does not operate his government like we operate earthly governments. Is this saying that God does not inflict punishment for sin? Yes. No. (laughs) Some might be concerned that to take that idea just from that one passage that I'm reading something into there, I'm projecting my own thoughts, I've got a bias that I'm reading into the the text because it really doesn't say that in the passage I read, and, and somebody argued that I'm reading that in. So let's go back and read the verses right before this and read it all in context. Isaiah 55, 7 through 9. You can check whichever scripture you, version you want. This is an IV. Let the wicked forsake his way and the evil man his thoughts. Let him turn to the Lord, for he will have mercy on him, to our God, for he will freely pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither my ways, your ways, neither are your ways, my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts, your thoughts. So in this context that we just read of where God is saying, my ways of doing things are not your ways, and my thoughts are not your thoughts, isn't the context specifically about how he deals with breaking his law, evil, and wickedness? Isn't that the con? I, I didn't project that in. It's specifically about that. The wages of sin are death, right? Yep. Okay, now, what about King Saul? Did he repent for his sins? Not that I know of. But David did, mm-hmm. and he was a greater sinner than Saul. Your answer to your question is yes. 
Sin does bring death. Right? Yep. The question is, what does God do, though? So sin brings death. We read that quote earlier. The wage of sin is death. Sin, when full grown, brings forth death. The one who sows the carnal nature from that nature reaps destruction. These are all New Testament passages. If you repent, God forgives. And you don't have death. How much of Christianity teaches that God freely pardons? Or how much of Christianity teaches that God's required to have a legal payment to pay for the penalty of sin before he can pardon? This is the point. God's saying, my ways aren't your ways. I, I, listen, this is scripture. I, I'm quoting the scripture. For he will freely pardon if we turn back to him. Right, if you do turn back. What, what was the flood? Was the flood not punishment for the wickedness of the world? No. <laughs> okay. Let's just think. Let's, let's reason our way through this. Okay. What, according to scripture, is the punishment for sin? Death. Eternal. Which death? The sleep death or the eternal death? Did the people at the flood die the eternal death? I understand that. So if it wasn't the eternal death, then it wasn't the punishment for sin, because the sleep death is not the punishment for sin. So your own question has been answered. Do you conclude that they will die the second death? I don't know that. No, I don't either, but I said, aren't we led to conclude that? By whom? By everything else that the Scripture says. No. If you die in your sin... Then, do we know that? Can you ask for forgiveness? Have you ever heard stories of missionaries going to certain pagan countries and preaching the gospel, and a 13, 14 year old child is convicted of wanting to come to church and be baptized, but their parent is maybe the witch doctor of the tribe and locks them in the house and won't let them come to services? Have you ever heard stories like this? So, is it possible there was somebody like that who wanted to get on the ark and the parents were not going to have it and locked them in the room? Yeah, it's possible. My point is, do we know every heart and mind that died in the flood? All we know is they didn't get on the ark. And by the way, were the ones saved on the ark because they were righteous? No. Okay. They were saved on the ark because only one man was righteous according to Scripture. The rest of them were saved because they got on the ark. Yeah, and this was not punishment for sin. We have to be clear in our terms. If we say first death is punishment for sin, there's a problem. I agree with that. But okay. So then we have to go, but maybe you're still looking for a reasonable answer, then why the flood? Maybe you shouldn't use the word punishment. <laughs> no, 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 I think this is an okay word. Because punishment comes out of human law constructs. Human, see, God builds space, time, energy, matter, life. His laws are the protocols upon which reality actually work, like law of respiration. It's one of his laws. If you want to live, you've got to breathe. It's a design law. Okay? Now, human law... We can't make space, time, energy matter, so we make up rules. So instead of punishment, you could use results. Okay. No, well, I'm not there yet. No, human law punishes. When you break a human law, there is no natural consequence, and so the authority must inflict a punishment. That's a human law. You get caught speeding, if, no, not caught, you, 35 miles an hour, you're doing 40. There is no inherent consequence for that. There is none. The consequence is... Can give you grace and not write you a ticket. The, the consequence is inflicted. It's imposed. It's a punishment by some authority upon you. But there's no inherent consequence. You must be caught. You must be brought before the magistrate. You must have some infliction inflicted upon you. That's human law. God's saying in Isaiah, my ways are not your ways. I don't operate that way. His laws are much more like the laws of health. Now, if you're sneaking behind your parents' back and you're smoking cigarettes and your parents don't find out, therefore your parents don't inflict punishment on you, are you getting away with it? <laughs> no, there's still a punishment. Where is the punishment coming from now? This is God's law. See, humans can pass laws, which five states just did, added to the list to make marijuana legal. They can never pass laws to make marijuana healthy. They can't do that. That's God's law. And this is the big difference. My ways are not your ways. And we are so infected with this idea that God runs his universe like a dictator runs Rome or like the president runs America or the governor runs the state. A system of rules that he then, but he's got the recording angels following you everywhere. Now think this through with me, guys. You're driving downtown Chattanooga and you look up in your rearview mirror. Now you're, you're obeying the law. You're not speeding. But you look up and a police officer's right behind you. Do you relax and feel more comfort? I feel so secure knowing that law enforcement is there to help me in my time of need. And you turn left and they turn left. You turn right and they turn right. Do you relax even more? 
Why not? Because you experience them as there to enforce, to find some flaw, to find some defect. Maybe your taillight's out. Maybe you forgot to send your registration and it's the first of the month. It was due on the 31st and they're going to write you. I mean, you, are, you start going through the inventory of all the things you might have done wrong that they could hold you accountable for and punish you for. Do you understand this, how many Christians see God and his angels? They're following you around, watching everything you do. There's not a sense of peace and security knowing an angel's at your side. There's a sense of dread. What will they find out? What will they record? Oh, but don't worry. Don't worry. If in our metaphor, the police officer's finding you, don't worry. You've got a radar jammer, and so when he uses his radar, he only gets back the n- number of the local speed limit because you're jamming him and sending him a new signal. And we have Christ on board, and Christ is covering us with the blood and with the robe of righteousness. When the Father looks to try to find our defects, he can't see it. He's reflected back the blood of Christ, and he only sees perfection. I recant. <laughs> he doesn't punish. Yeah. You're right. Okay. That's one of the reasons why I became the Seventh-day Adventist for what my beliefs were before, because of the point of view of how we look at how God punishes for sin compared to how other beliefs do. Yes, and, and for those who really do value an Ellen White quote, we can reason these things out. But and I, I was, I've traveled around the world, and I, I will just tell you, we've seen this in every field that I've traveled to. I will present these truths. And you can see the hearts and minds of the people loving it. They're drawn to this God of love. But in Adventist circles, there's this apprehension, this fear, until I give them an Ellen White quote. Until I give them the, oh, I knew it. I can believe it. Now I can believe it. It's true. So. It never came from Paul or Peter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. Until there's an Ellen White quote, they can't really feel at peace. Okay? And so if you, first, uh, first selected message is 235. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of sin reacts upon the sinner. It makes it more easy for him to transgress again. They separate themselves from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. But see, we have been taught our whole life as Adventists about the judgment. I was watching Doug Batchelor last night and his sermon was on the judgment. You know, and it's like, how do we get past this? How do we, I mean, I really believe that God doesn't punish. I do believe that. But then I go back and I'm... When you, when you read about the judgment, are you reading through our ways? Or are you saying God's ways are not our ways? There's another way to understand that whole scenario. So fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come. Do you hear that as the hour has come when a tribunal sits, records are opened and investigations occur and punishments are meted out? That's how he presented it. Of course it did. (laughs) But that's not really what it means. Paul says in Romans 3, verse 4, and you read the various translations. This is what it, various translations. God, may you be proved right when you are judged. Let every man be a liar, but God, may you be proved right when you are judged. Who Now, you, you've heard the analogy before. You've heard the analogy before. You're in a faithful, loving, other-centered marriage that you love and trust your spouse, your spouse loves and trusts you, and somebody comes to you and tells you a lie that your spouse has been cheating, but they haven't. But if you believe the lie, let's put it on the other foot. Your spouse has been lied to about you. They believe you've been cheating because their oldest son told them you've been cheating and and doctored pictures on their computer and made it look like you were somebody else, but you haven't. You've been loyal and faithful. But now your spouse believes you've been cheating and they move out. If you want your spouse back because you know your spouse is the victim of a liar, what will you have to do? Won't you have to prove your innocence? Who's on trial there? The innocent party is the one that's on trial. And that's what's happened in Scripture. Satan lied about God, and we believe those lies. And God is working through Christ and his agencies to bring us the truth. You'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Life eternal is that they might know you, the only true God. It's all centering on that. We wage war against everything that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. And so at the end of time, God prophesies through his various prophets, at the end of time, it will finally have enough truth revealed back and shown through the, the various channels that I'm able to work through in human history that the time has come where people can make a right judgment about God and worship him. Notice, fear God, be in awe of God, and give him glory. Reveal him in your character. That's what it means to glorify him. 
Because the hour in human history has come for people to actually make a right determination or judgment about God's trustworthiness. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, and the sea. In other words, worship the designer and reject this dictator view of God. Why was this necessary? Because Paul prophesied in Thessalonians. He says that uh, the end will not come. Don't worry about people prophesying and saying the Lord has returned. It hasn't happened. Because the end won't come until the man of sin arises. And that man of sin will set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. Now think this through. Paul's writing, what temple could this be? Is he saying that, that, that Satan is going to ride into heaven and knock Jesus off his heavenly throne? No. The temple of Jerusalem is not available. What temple is he going to set himself up in? Know ye not that ye are a temple. So this man of sin is going to rise and he set himself up in God's temple proclaiming himself to be God. How? By getting human beings worldwide, and it's worldwide, to accept this lie that God's ways are like ours, imperialism, a dictator, a being who we must be protected from. And that's why he prophesied at the end of time, 2,300 years until the sanctuary will be cleansed. Cleansed from what? From the lies about God. That's why there's a message to that God, it's time for the judgment, time for us to judge God rightly and reject these lies and cleanse the spirit temple. There's a big difference between fear and respect. So when the Bible talks about fearing God, do you think that's the uh, interpreters, the translators' um, perspective coming in, or even the original writer's misconception? I'm jumping ahead, and we're going to go back. We're going to backtrack here, but... Boy, what day is that? In Sunday's lesson, it asks us to read several texts, and I'll jump up to the one that you've just referenced. It is um, Job twenty-eight, twenty-eight, And he said unto me, The fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to shun evil is understanding. And so this question of fear, does it mean terror, dread, stress, anxiety? Or does it mean awe, reverence, admiration? Well, what does the Bible say? Perfect love casts out all Fear. So when we come to truly know God, surrender our hearts to him, come back into a relationship with him, do we love him more or love him less? We love him more. So then what would happen to fear? If we love him more and perfect love casts out all fear, then our fear, our dread, our terror of him goes away. But does our admiration, our awe, our respect of him go away? No, it goes stronger. So fear in the context of fear, God, and glory to him, it's not about terror and dread. It's about admiration and awe. Amen. Yeah. Okay? So, let's, uh, let's move on then to Sunday's lesson. Ask us to examine some texts. Job 15, 14 through 16. What is man that he could be pure, or one born of woman that he could be righteous? If God places no trust in his holy ones... If even the heavens are not pure in his eyes, how much less man who is vile and corrupt, who drinks up evil like water? Is there any truth in this text? No. Who said this? This was Elihu. No. It wasn't? It was a spirit. A spirit to? It was a spirit sitting on on the foot of his bed, Uh telling him this nonsense. In Job 1.8, God said Job was upright. So, whose argument do you hear here? Who, who's got sour grapes? Lucifer. If he doesn't even, if he even, if he even finds fault, doesn't trust his angels in heaven, his, his heavenly beings, his angels, he doesn't even trust them. How's he going to trust you? You hear sour grapes going on here? So, can a man born of woman be righteous? Well, let's just talk about Jesus. Was he born of a woman? Galatians 4 4, born of a woman under law. And was he righteous in every way? And then through Jesus, can we be righteous? Absolutely. So this is a lie that we, that we can be righteous. Um, this question, was it designed to bring hope or discouragement? Discouragement. This was designed to discourage. Yes. Deuteronomy 30, 9 and 10, reading just verse 10. If you obey the Lord your God to keep his commandments and his statutes, which are written in his book of law, if you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, we can do that. He has given us the power through his spirit. That's right. Not by our power, but yes. That's right. So was this statement then a a statement of cosmic reality? It was not. It was a deception from, from the deceiver. 
But many people believe this. They think this way. It's actually in certain Christian doctrines that, that we are morally corrupt. We have original guilt. We're, we're condemned to hell, that there's no good thing that comes from us. But from Jesus comes everything we need. Jo- yes, exactly. Job 19, 25-27. I know my Redeemer... Some versions use the word defender, depending on translation, redeemer slash defender lives. And that in the end, he will stand upon the, he will stand upon the earth. After my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another. How my heart yearns within me. You hear truth in this verse. Yes, there's truth in this verse. Um, who is our redeemer, our defender? And this is a critical issue to think through. There's no question, it's Christ. What, when you hear the words, he is my defender, my redeemer, what law lens are you looking through? What's the problem he's redeeming and defending you from? What is the problem that sin caused that the plan of salvation is designed to fix? How many automatically, when they hear words like redeemer, defender, immediately see a courtroom scene with, with the father as the judge, Satan is accusing, Jesus is by our advocate, our, our defense attorney, defending us in a heavenly courtroom. And Satan is bringing up all the sins we've ever committed. And Jesus is there saying, well, uh, my blood, Father, my blood. I I plead my blood. And they open the records and the blood has been applied in this like magic eraser ink. And then we have no record here what you're saying, devil. How many think that way? That's not what's going on. Yes, Wendell. In Romans 8, it says God the Father is our defender. Yes. God the Holy Spirit is our defender. And God the Son is our defender. That's correct. That's absolutely right. Some protest what I'm saying, though. And they say, no, 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 you're, you're distorting. You're only taking parts of Scripture. You're leaving out critical passages like 1 John 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you, that ye sin not. And if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. See? See? Jennings, you're wrong. He's right up there advocating with the Father for us. My little children. Yep, yep. So what law lens do you look through this through? See, if we fall into the trap of thinking God's ways are like our ways, then we go down that whole legal construct. Remember, God's are design laws, and what's wrong is we are actually dying terminal, in a terminal state, um, unless God intervenes to heal, then it may lead us a different direction. Not only that, but John's writing to little children. Uh, metaphorically speaking, he's writing to children, Christian children, who, have, who may have a level one, level two uh, stage of moral development. That may be the language that they needed. Perhaps. Which, yeah, no, which yeah. direction is Christ standing? Well, this is where we're going with this. Let's remember, when we read a passage like this, let's see what Christ himself said. John 16, 25, 26, 27, and 28, uh, Jesus says, I've been using a lot of metaphors and symbols. Now I'm going to tell you plain, like it is. No more metaphors, no more symbols. And the apostle says, finally, you're telling us like it is. So here we go. Though I've been speaking to you figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world to go back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Clear passage. Jesus says he will or he will not speak the Father for us. Because he doesn't need to. The Father loves us. And so what Wendell was referring to a moment ago in Romans 8, Romans 8 starting in verse 31, What shall we say then in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up, how will we not along with him give us all things? Who is it that brings a charge against those God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is it that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. What's that word also mean? In addition to. So Christ is interceding in addition to the Father, not with the Father. They're both interceding for us. So how do we harmonize all this? God is at the right hand of God and acting as God's agent to fulfill God's purpose in advocating for us. 
But the question is, Wendell was going here, to whom is Christ advocating? Who needs, think this through with me, let's reason it out. In this cosmic conflict, does God the Father have some deficiency in understanding, in knowledge, in wisdom? Is he confused in some way? Is he lacking some type of truth that he needs presented to him to persuade him, to convince him, to win him over? That's a silly question, but do you understand that's what a lot of Christians have Christ doing? Who in this universe is covered by darkness and gross darkness covers them? Whose minds have been confused? Whose minds are filled with distortions and misunderstandings and, and, and lies? Who needs to be pled with to convince them to change the, the pathway that they're on? It's us. Human beings need this pleading in order to win us back. So, we see this is the work of Christ. Now, we've reasoned that out. How many are comfortable just standing on your reasoning ability to figure that out on your own? Not many hands. A couple of hands, okay. But let's, let's not stay there. Um, let's, let's put some scripture and some inspired references to it. Jesus said, this is John sixteen fourteen. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. Now, who do you think the Holy Spirit is listening to? He's not speaking on his own. He's going to speak only what he hears. Is the Holy Spirit listening to you and me? And, and so it's like he's checking in with, uh, with Russell this week. Well, Russell, what should I tell people this week? Is the Holy Spirit listening to any human being? Is the Holy Spirit listening to the devil? No. Who is the Holy Spirit listening to? Who is a, who's represent, representative on earth is he? He's Christ's representative on earth. He's listening to Christ. He's, he's like the, the, the great communicating agency for Jesus. Now, this is what, uh, one of the, what Ellen White wrote in Second Manuscript 37. While Jesus, our intercessor, pleads for us in heaven, the Holy Spirit works in us to will and do according to his good pleasure. All heaven is interested in the salvation of the soul. Then what reason have we to doubt that the Lord doesn't, will not and does not help us? We who teach the people must ourselves have a vital connection with God. In spirit and work, we should be to the people a wellspring because Christ is in us a well of water springing up to everlasting life. Now, Jesus, our intercessor, pleads for us in heaven. The Holy Spirit works in us to will and to do. All heaven is interested in our salvation. So first, if all heaven is interested in our salvation, is he pleading with someone in heaven to be more interested? No. To persuade, to get them on board, to recruit some helpers. Is that what he's pleading for in heaven? No. Where is Christ located at in, in the cosmos at this time? Wh- whatever that place is, we call it heaven. That's where he's at. He's not physically here on earth. Does he have a heart that longs for his people? And so he pleads. With us. Ah, there you go. And he will not, the Holy Spirit was going to come, but he's not going to speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. He's listening to, the, to Jesus, and he is communicating the pleas of Jesus to every human being on earth. Don't you know that I love you? I'll heal you if you'll let me. You can trust me. Don't you see what I've done for you? Won't you let me in? This is what's happening. So we read about him. He's at the right hand of the Father, advocating for us. Absolutely he is. But he's not advocating to the Father. He is doing the Father's purposes, advocating to us to win us back to trust. Yes? In John 16, uh, when Jesus is giving his last discourse, his final sum-up thing of his whole mission in life and what he hopes for them and what he has planned for them, in John 16, Jesus is saying, I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear now. But when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. And he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from me, from taking uh, what is mine mine, and making it known to you. All that belongs to the father is mine. And that's why I said the spirit will take what is mine and make it known to you. And what is it he takes that makes it known to us? His character. We become partakers of the, according to Peter, 
We become partakers of the divine nature. He takes the perfect character that Christ developed in his human journey on earth and makes it known to us. He wins us to trust and restores us to Christ's likeness in our heart, where we love God and others more than self. Selfishness and fear are purged as the dominating motives in our hearts. Now, this is such a beautiful message. Why wouldn't our people want to present it like this instead of like the judgment and stuff? Because, number one, the core, they don't understand God's law. They're operating under rules. We're damaged. Well, no, it's because if you think about how kids operate, they're under rules, and the primary concern when you're under rules is fear of punishment. And the current theology, the way it's taught, their payment has been made. They accept the payment. They have a sense of security. They don't have to, they don't have to fear the judgment because Jesus has made the payment for them, and so they can stand in the judgment. It's all about self-security. That's why. Based on a false law construct. Hmm. Let's go to that quote. We, we started it, the Job twenty-eight twenty-eight. the fear of the Lord is wisdom and to shun evil is understanding. We talked about the fear of the Lord. Let's talk about the shunning of evil as understanding. This is quite true. It is true that, it, that to shun evil is understanding, but this would really mean that we understand God's design law and how things are designed to work rather than because shunning evil is not shunning rules. In other words, it's not shunning the breaking of rules. When you shun evil, you actually may break rules. Can you break rules, even some that God has given, and not be doing evil? Oh, it's a tricky question. How about David? Jesus quoted David and the showbread. There was rules about who could eat the showbread. But David gave showbread to his men, and Jesus cited that as an example of doing what was right. Why? Because the rules were just theater. That's all it was, just rules. There was no inherent consequence. But David's men had real need, and David's act was an act of love to help men who he cared about. And it was also in harmony with the laws of health because it gave them nutrition that their bodies needed. So this was design law overruling rules. How about picking heads of grain on Sabbath? Those were man-made rules. You don't find that. I don't believe you'll find that anywhere in the Scripture. But they had made that rule about about that. And, of course, they broke that rule. How about healing on Sabbath? That's a good one. You know, Jesus didn't heal emergency cases on Sabbath. Somebody severed their artery and they're bleeding to death and, and he healed. No, he healed chronic cases. 38 years of, of, of paralysis. Come see me in the office on Monday. It's my weekend. I'm off. No, he specifically healed on Sabbath, knowing it was breaking their rules. And this is the difference between design, and, but it was an act of love. It was in harmony with God's design. It's restoring things back the way God has constructed reality to work. It was giving a self to the benefit of another. So, Shunning evil does not necessarily mean we avoid breaking rules. Depends on what the rules are. Isn't that true? Monday's lesson, again, uh, says, second paragraph, again, Job represents much of humanity in that many people suffer things that they don't deserve. And the question, in many ways, the hardest question of all is why? In some cases, the answer to suffering is relatively easy. People clearly bring the trouble on themselves, but so often, and especially in the case of Job, that's not what happened. And so the question of suffering remains. And so that's the question. Why do some people suffer from no volitional choice of their own? Is there one reason or multiple reasons? So let's look at some of the reasons people suffer. I'm not saying this will be an exhaustive list, but some of the reasons. Romans 8, all nature groans under the weight of sin. The entire planet is operating with an infection that's out of harmony with God's original design, and that infection causes all of nature to suffer. So this is why a lot of diseases happen. This is why there's toxins and thorns and poisonous plants, and this is why our, our, uh, we can have genetic anomalies and, and congenital defects and these types of things, because the whole nature, the code, somebody's mucked with the code, and the code is not the way God designed it. Okay, That's one reason. Second reason, there are actually people with evil hearts who intend to hurt other people, and they want to exploit. They're not acting in love, they're acting in selfishness. That's another reason. There's awful evil angels that intend to do harm and want to harm others. Accidents happen. Random acts happen in this world. What does it mean, though, after we give some of those reasons, what does it mean, though, that God permits such evil things to happen? Why doesn't he use his power to prevent it? Well, think this through. What action would God have to take in order to stop a person who's intent on doing evil from choosing evil? Mind control. Mind control. No choices, no freedom of choice. And, and, and what would result if God were to override someone's 
free will choices, would that person still be a free will individual? They become robotic, they become programmed, and can love and love exist in an atmosphere where people are just programmed to behave by the one who programs them. No, so it, so God would not be a being of love, number one. His own nature would go, he doesn't go against his own nature, but a being who would do that would not be love, and we as individuals would not be able to love if God were to function this way. His universe wouldn't be what we know it to be. Secondly, does God, though, seek to get those individuals who are choosing to do evil, does he seek to get them to choose not to? How? What are his methods that he works on to try to get people to use their freedom to choose to not do evil, to do good instead? The Holy Spirit. Okay. So the Holy Spirit brings conviction to their heart. That's one. Conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he allows consequences. I mean, sometimes, you know, the, the thing that is a consequence that maybe he could prevent and so on, he doesn't because that consequence is the thing we need. So experiencing the consequence, which is real-life experiences, experiences that can educate when pain and suffering happens and we deviate from design. Yes, exactly. Touch a hot stove. Bring someone into the light, influence them to the better. Okay. So human beings, whether that be human beings who write things like scripture or religious books or recordings or personal intercessions with people, other people who have goodness to share and wisdom, truth, so... It's conviction of the spirit, consequences, life experiences, witnessing of other people, science and nature, Romans one twenty, God's divine nature, seeing what he has made so that men are without excuse, seeing how reality actually works. It's all there. Okay. Um, miraculous signs occasionally, sometimes, not often, but sometimes. Your, your donkey might talk to you. <laughs> okay. You could have an experience of Saul become Paul. <laughs> A Damascus Road experience, uh, sometimes miracles, he'll miraculously intervene. Or, let's give this example. Pharaoh, who holds the Jewish nation in slavery. He had the evidence of God in nature. Whether he understood it or not, it was still there. He had messages from a human being, Moses, came and witnessed to him directly. He had conviction of the Holy Spirit, and he had miraculous signs and wonders. All of these things, many, many miraculous signs and wonders... Did it result in Pharaoh choosing to turn away from evil? It did not. What else could God have done for him? And every time he was convicted, and every time he understood, and every time he chose the evil, his heart was hardened. That's why it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart in in several places, and in several other places that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. God's action was to bring him the messages of truth. Pharaoh's actions were to decide to accept or reject. And when we reject truth in our life, it hardens our heart. How about those who arrested Christ? They had the evidence of science and nature. Again, it's all around them. They had the Old Testament scriptures. They had the witness of John the Baptist. They had the opportunity to hear Jesus speak for himself. They had miracles performed by Jesus in his ministry all around them and stories of those, including for them, these ones who came to arrest Christ, the divinity flashing through humanity, and they fell down for a moment because it was too bright and intense for them. And then they actually saw Jesus take an ear that had been cut off and put on the guy's head and put it back on. And that... Turn them away from evil? No, they still persisted. Get your mind around that. Man, you, you just put yourself in that. All that God had done. And, and, and you ask, so in these situations, like with Pharaoh, like with these what more can God do? So what are these examples and others like them, and there's many others, tell us? Does it give some insight into God's methodology, how he works, what he does and does not do? God wants our love and trust. That's what he wants, our genuine love and genuine trust in him. You cannot get love and trust by the exercise of might and power. You can't get it. Truth presented in love, leaving people free, wins the heart. So understanding why this stuff happens, think this through with me. After Adam and Eve sinned, if God takes no action, he just sits silently by and does nothing, what will happen? What will happen to life on planet Earth? It will die. Get your mind. God does not have to act to inflict death to punish sin. God, once they infected themselves, this condition is terminal. God had to act to stop death from destroying his creation. 
Do you understand how upside down and backwards most Christian theology is? Most Christian theology has Jesus acting to stop God from destroying. But it was God acting through Christ to stop sin from destroying his creation. And once Adam and Eve sinned, and they had children on this planet, would their children be born in perfect righteousness and harmony with God or out of harmony? So if God doesn't act, what will happen to those children? They They will also die. Get your mind around that. Every human being is not born guilty and condemned to death by a judicial magistrate. We are born terminal with a condition we didn't choose that if not remedied will result in death. And God through Christ sent Christ to remedy the condition. And I like what you said at another time comparing the Ten Commandments law to an MRI. It doesn't save you, but it shows you how terminal you are. In, in, in the way things should be, you can see how the way you aren't. Exactly. It's your terminal condition. It doesn't save you, but it shows you. So get your mind around. Once Adam and Eve sinned, they had a simple choice. Have no children or have children born terminal with this condition. Like an HIV-infected man, an HIV-infected woman. They either have no children or they have children born HIV-infected. That's it. It's their only choice. They could not fix the condition. They could not cure the problem. That's why Christ came, to cure the problem. So the basic argument in Tuesday's lesson of Elihu is that God is doing all this and that God only does what's right, so Job must deserve it. That's the basic argument of Elihu. God's doing all the suffering to Job. God only does the right thing, therefore Job must deserve it. Has the Bible in other places actually said God does things he doesn't actually do? I love uh, this, this one. This one maybe we don't often hear, but I'm going to read to you out of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel 16, 14 through 16, and then 19, 9 and 10. Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you. And then, but an evil spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he was sitting in his house with his spear in his hand. While David was playing the harp, Saul tried to pin him to the wall with his spear, but David eluded him as Saul drove the spear into the wall. Do we believe this spirit was coming from the Lord? But the Bible said it. Aren't we to believe it? This is the way the interpreters interpreted it. This is this is not, uh, not interpreters. You mean the 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 Bible writers? That's right. Okay, not the translators. Not the people who translated into English. No, this is this is how it was written in the Hebrew. This is how they wrote it. Okay, in the Hebrew. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's go back to who created the fallen angels. That's right. Yeah. Originally, they were prepared. God Himself created the fallen angels. It doesn't mean that. <clears throat> God brought the evil. An evil spirit from the Lord. So you think that maybe that's what it's referring to, that an evil spirit... It could be also be that God took on his responsibility, took, took responsibility for good and evil in the Old Testament, so as not to... Um, this is the mindset, guys. This is the mindset of the times. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the time of the Old Testament, people believed... God caused things he didn't specifically prevent. So uh, this is... Ago, we had a discussion over uh, Job's wife. She said, curse God and die. But what did she really say to him? Did she really say, bless God and die? The Hebrew word is the same. That's right. So we have to look at right. the context of what it's saying. In this particular one, though, this isn't nuanced like that. And you'll find many other places, for instance, where Saul fell on a sword. In one place, it'll say Saul fell on a sword. In another place, David says God put him to death. God didn't put him to death. So this is the SDA Bible commentary on these passages. This is what it says. The scripture sometimes represents God as doing that which he does not specifically prevent. In giving Satan an opportunity to demonstrate his principles, God, in effect, would limit his own power. Of course, there were limits beyond which Satan could not go. So God did not stop Satan from doing it. Therefore, the Bible writers give God the credit for doing it. Is that actually the same thing? This is, this, it is not the same thing at all. It is not the same thing at all. Satan, when, in the book of Job, 
when God said, you can do whatever you want, God did not restrict him to harming him. Again, Satan was free to bless him with more wealth and more territories and more adoration from other lands. He was only given freedom to act in what way Satan wanted to act. God was not directing how Satan acted. That was Satan's choice. So, well, we're out of time for today. Um, boy, there's a, there's a passage I think we really just should hit real quick, and because it's a quote from Ellen White, and there's a false conclusion drawn. It quotes this quote, and it says, in, It is impossible to explain the origin of sin, so that is to give a reason for its existence. Satan is an intruder. Sin is an intruder, for whose presence no reason could be given. And then the lesson goes, there's a good reason that Job and his friends can't make sense of, of, of it uh, and evil, because evil doesn't make sense. If we could understand it and make sense of it and fit into some logical, rational plan, then it wouldn't be evil. Now, that's a distorted interpretation of what she said. What she said is there's no reason, there's no explanation for the origin of sin. Not that it is impossible to understand why evil happens in this world. See, sin originated in a perfect, sinless universe, and there is no explanation for it at all. But in a world that's infected with selfishness, with fear, with corruption, we can look and we can explain frequently why evil things happen in a world that's already infected. And there are reasons why this person did that and that person did this. doesn't make it right, but we can understand why. Okay, and there's a big difference. So uh, don't, don't go this way. Well, we have no explanation for why the evil things happen. Yes, we do, because we're out of harmony with God's design. That's why. And some of the other reasons we already gave. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are an amazing God of truth, a God of love, a God who gives us true freedom, a God who uses all of your resources to reach us and to heal us. Yet there is a real war for our minds. The infection of uh, imperialistic thought is so deep in, in our hearts and minds that it's so often difficult to see your, the beauty of your true character. We know at this time in Earth's history is a time when a message is to go forward to, to pull back the distortions so that people can really see you, the creator God who made the heavens, the earth, and all that in the midst. We ask empower, empowerment to make this message clear in your holy name. Amen. Amen.